think it's fair to say that Labor Day had a little more meaning this year than it has in a while. Just think of all of the labor strife that we've seen in Canada and the United States this year. Uh, here in Canada, the largest public sector strike in history, right? Port workers walked out in British Columbia. That caused all kinds of problems for a couple weeks. Uh, Hollywood writers, screen actors have been out on strike for months now. Um, and now we've got auto workers on both sides of the border talking about labor action that could be really, really impactful. Lots going on between employers and employees right now. Why? What's happening? Let's find out. We're going to speak with Francis Ryan, a labor historian in the Rutgers School of Management and Labor Relations. Uh, Francis, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's really kind of seems like a lot of things going on at once. Is it an unusually busy time for labor strife, or, or does it just feel that way? Is this pretty normal, or is it a little exaggerated? You know, Shay, the thing that I notice um, from 30 years of uh, observing uh, you know, the labor scene in the U.S. and Canada, this is a special time. I, I think that I can hear the uh, the Geiger counter of history making noises. Okay. Um, I've never seen this much uh, action, organizing, and strikes in, in really my lifetime. So if you take a look at his, historically speaking, where Labor Day came from, there's some parallels, right, to what we're seeing today in terms of some of the unrest in the labor market. Yeah, I think that's an accurate point. I, you know, the, at least in the U.S., the, the Labor Day holiday really dates back to 1894. And at that time, you know, there was a lot of industrial strife uh, that was marking, um, you know, workplaces around the U.S. And so it is very similar. You know, you had a lot of strikes. You had a lot of uh, dissent in the workplace. And there's a lot of characters that seem similar. You know, we had kind of these robber barons back then, like mm-hmm. uh, Andrew Carnegie. And today we have uh, people like Elton Musk. You know, like it's it's actually, it, it seems really uh, similar in that way. I mean, Elon Musk, I said. <laughs> Um, but you're right, though, we, and, and, and the wage disparity, right? I mean, that's part of yeah. it, too, because we were just talking with a, a guest here who was trying to provide backpacks for kids to go back to school and couldn't keep up with demand. It's happening. I mean, it's tough for a lot of people just to make ends meet right now, so you can understand they're going to be looking for more from whoever they're working for. Right. I think that's a, a true point, that... In the 1890s, you know, you had a lot of people needing to work, you know, that sometimes the hours, I mean, is 14 or 15 hours. And the, the real demand wasn't just wages. It had to do with time. Uh, workers wanted an eight-hour day. And this really wasn't legally mandated in the U.S. until the 1930s. So there was a, a real important shift, you know, that there's a, a slogan in the U.S. labor movement, uh, you know, the labor movement, the people that brought you the weekend. And that's an accurate depiction of what organized labor did, you know, the two-day weekend, 40-hour week. And it really changed the ways that working class people participated in civic life. You know, I look back on my own childhood growing up in Philadelphia in the 70s, and all of my soccer coaches and baseball coaches were working men. They were house painters. They worked as longshoremen. Um, you know, they worked in factories. Some of them were police officers. And they were able to have some time that they could give back to the kids of the neighborhood. And as unions lost their position, uh, it became harder for working people to have that extra time because they needed to work two or three jobs mm-hmm. 
just to get by. And it really impacts not just the individual worker and their family, but really entire neighborhoods, entire cities. No, you're absolutely right. We're actually coming up in just Phoenix. We're talking about the fact that so many people are holding so many jobs and uh, some of the impact that's having. We talk, you, you talk about the shift and how things changed, uh, and that was part of the whole labor movement back in the day. We've got a shift going on now, don't we? I mean, you, you're talking about the pandemic and what that did to um, the labor market, and that it turned it on its head and completely changed some things forever, I would think. You've got artificial intelligence. That's been at the yeah. key of a few different strikes that we've talked about. So there are definitely some major pressures and perhaps another shift happening right now. Yeah, that's that's something that I think we all need to, to kind of figure out how the economy yeah. is changing. I really do think that there's a, a rising wave of change, and, and the artificial intelligence is a big part of that. The labor movement traditionally around the world has really been a movement of young people. And I think we see that in certainly in the 1930s, the people who are waging those sit-down strikes in, mm-hmm. in places like Flint, Michigan, they were people in their 20s and 30s. They were young people starting out with families, recently married. They had a lot at stake. And I think that today what we see here around the world is that young people, again, are at the forefront of thinking about new kinds of responses. You know, and, and there's a recent poll that said in the U.S. that um, 88% of people under the age of 30 are in support of unions. And that's a really remarkable number. It is, yeah. That's higher than I would have expected. Yeah. You know, two-thirds of, of Americans, they say in a recent poll, are um, sympathetic to unions sure. for all the benefits that, that come. And, you know, th- this is the the highest percentage that that has been since the 1960s. So I I think that there is your point about the similarities between the 1890s and our own time is actually right on point. In terms of I was going to ask you then about, uh, you know, the importance and the relevance of um, labor unions. And obviously, then 88% still think that they're valuable. Uh, They're not going away. And I mean, how does this labor situation unfold, do you think? Because it looks like both sides digging in a little bit, at least in some of these areas. Yeah, there's no question. I, I mean, one of the things about the industrial organizing that's starting in, you know, in the late 1800s is that, you know, those jobs, for the most part, um, have disappeared. You know, a city like Philadelphia lost 100,000 manufacturing jobs between 1970 and 1980. The new organizing drives that are happening now are really in the service industry, and those jobs aren't going anywhere. Right. So I, I think that's one thing we can see. I think that in the U.S. there has been a... Um, a shift that there's there's now a new um, National Labor Relations Board decision that allows uh, union organizers to uh, to bring forth a union election, and if there is in fact any indication of unfair labor practices, which is very common, the most common practice that happens is that the union organizers and their supporters are fired. Right, um, and there's a new law that's that's come into effect that will actually make that illegal. Uh, it actually is illegal, but now there's really going to be some teeth to it. So I think that might be a shift in terms of organizing. And I think if, if unions are going to 
to get to the next phase of its history, they need to organize and really put some money into uh, trying to bring new members in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting time. And like we say, you know, whenever you have shift, whenever you have transformation, that's when things like this can uh, sort of start to take off a bit. Uh, fascinating conversation, Francis. Thank you so much for being here today. I really do appreciate it. 911.